This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And if you're visiting, this isn't normal. It's a good point. We're not either, she says. Um, this is just something we do once a year uh, because today is Reformation Sunday, which is the day the church worldwide remembers the Protestant Reformation. Happened in the 16th century. You see, by the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had greatly corrupted uh, what we would call the Christian faith. For example, they had added a bunch of things someone had to do to be saved, uh, obstacles uh, between man and God. And in addition to that, they had added a whole pile of, of things and people that could be worshipped. Things like saints and relics and even geographical locations had been venerated to near divine status. And by doing so, by, by adding things to the faith, uh, just like Jesus told the Pharisees, what the Catholic Church had done was made void the Word of God. So beginning in 1517, people like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin uh, set out to reform the church. And that simply meant they set out to, to clear away all of the extra stuff that was weighing down the faith, that had been attached to the faith in order to return to the simple doctrines of the Christian faith. You might be thinking, that's great, Grant, thanks for the history lesson, but what in the world does that have to do with me? Well, you know the saying, those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. They're right. Meaning, rather than think of the Reformation as an event that took place 400 years ago, we at this church, and, and many others like us, see the, the Reformation as an ongoing practice that we need to be engaged in. Which is why we call ourselves a Reformed church. Because we should always be checking and correcting and affirming that we're not adding to or, or weighing down the simple doctrines of grace by anything we believe or that we do. Because the truth of the matter is, the gospel waters are always being muddied. Maybe not by saints or ancient relics or something like that in the 15th century, but the, but the gospel waters are still being muddied all the same. To give you a, a snapshot of what I mean, in September of last year, Ligonier Ministries and, and Lifeway released their 2022 State of America American Theology Report. It's a biannual uh, report where about 3,000 Americans are polled and asked for their answers to questions about theology. Now, what the average American thinks about theology is one thing, but it's what the 40% or so who claim to be evangelical Christians, it's what they think about theology that's interesting. Because what we see is those who claim to be Christian are increasingly ill-informed or, or susceptible to, to cultural pressure when it comes to biblical doctrine. For example, in 2022, this is over half, 
of people who claim to be evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Muslim, Judaism, Buddhism. Likewise, 60% of evangelicals, this is in 2022, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Nearly two-thirds, 65% of people who claim to be evangelical Christians believe that we are born innocent in the eyes of God. And listen, just last year, 73%, nearly three-quarters of people who claim to be evangelical Christians in America believe that Jesus is just the first and greatest being created by God. Now, Maybe you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, that's what I thought about some of those things. Or maybe you're shocked by the higher numbers. Either way, it doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, the point is, is that that's the tide we must be constantly reforming against. So how do we do that? How as a church do we do that? Well, if you didn't know, 2023 is Cedar Springs Church's 10th anniversary. So I want to take us back to our roots, meaning I want to revisit the plain doctrines of grace that not only the Reformers, but that this church was established on. And one way the Reformers summarized those doctrines was with five Latin phrases called the five solas. It was sola sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, uh, sola uh, scriptura, and soli deo gloria, which roughly translated into English means We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, as told in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, there's absolutely no way I can do justice to those five things in a single Sunday. I probably couldn't do it in a year. But we're going to try our best, so let's get started by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, where first we see that we are saved sola gratia, or by grace alone, sola gratia. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Paul might be considered a master of Greek language, but he certainly missed the class on punctuation in English. So one of the things that can kind of help you better understand what Paul is saying is to try to cut out all of his interjectory phrases and 
and, and look at the, the guts of what he's saying. For example, notice how Paul begins each section of this passage. In verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And, and then in the next section, in verse 5, he says again, Even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, Paul is emphasizing our inability, our helplessness, our deadness. Why? Well, because notice at the beginning of verse 4, he doesn't say, but you. Or even, but you and God. No, he says, but God. Meaning, Paul is emphasizing that only God is at work at the moment of salvation. We were not mostly bad people who who figured things out and made just one good decision that saved our lives. And we certainly are not good people who, who can add believing in God to our list of accomplishments. Which is why Paul emphasizes our spiritual deadness, because we were as capable of doing something good spiritually as a physical person is who is dead. But look at why Paul amplifies God's actions with our deadness. Listen listen for the graces in the second half of this passage. He says in verse 4, he begins, But God, while we were still dead, made you alive in Jesus Christ, because... The end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Then in the middle of verse 7, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And in case it's still unclear, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing or a result of works so that no one may boast. This is one of the main issues during the Reformation because the Catholic Church had added a bunch of works to grace. And don't get me wrong, the Catholic Church certainly believes that grace is a big part of salvation. But they believe that that one also has to perform the sacraments of the church in order to obtain that grace. Now, you might be wondering, thinking, Grant, I know about grace. How do you know I need to be reminded that I am saved by grace alone? Well, the reason I know that we need to be reminded that we are saved by grace alone is because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was such a great practical joker. That's how I know. I hesitate to share this illustration because then I won't be able to do it to any of you, at least who are here. But he tells the story that one time he, he anonymously sent the same telegram to 12 of his friends that said, flee immediately, you have been found out. It's a cruel, cruel practical joke. Because then he goes on to say that that by the end of that month, all 12 of his friends had fled England. (laughs) The point is, is just like Doyle's 12 friends, we need to be reminded that we are saved by grace alone. Because the guilt and the shame that results from our continual sin continues to plague us. You see, most of us, we're okay saying we were saved by grace. We we can look at our salvation and we can see the grace that we were clearly shown at that time. But don't you sometimes feel like that grace was a one-time event? 
I mean, even though you know you were saved by grace, don't you sometimes feel the pressure to perform, to keep God's favor? Listen, we were saved by grace alone and, and we stay saved by grace alone. We stay saved by grace alone. For example, are you ever afraid or anxious or worried about anything? That's us thinking God is weak. Or are you ever angry at someone for something they did to you? Well, that's the little God inside of us slamming his fist on the table and saying, how dare you insult my kingdom? Now, please understand, is my point that we shouldn't have those feelings? Yes, that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. We shouldn't have those feelings, but we all do. Which is why we need to be constantly reminded that we not only were, but still are being saved by grace. Every day when we sin, grace continues to to flood over us like a broken dam as God continues to cover our sin with the blood of Christ. We are saved by grace alone. But how do we get that grace? Because we know that God certainly doesn't show grace to everyone. So turn to your left a few pages to Galatians chapter 2. You see, Galatians played a huge part in the Reformation because it's where Paul was correcting a lot of the same problems in the Galatian church that Martin Luther faced in the Catholic. For example, look at Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 15 where after establishing his apostolic authority, Paul says this. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now this passage, it absolutely captivated Martin Luther because it contradicted everything he had been told by the Catholic Church about how someone is justified. Which is why he added it to his argument against the Catholic Church that that we are justified by grace alone through that grace is found in sola fide, or through faith alone. The story goes that Charles Spurgeon, who was an avid cigar smoker, was confronted one day by a woman who was absolutely appalled that a Christian preacher would smoke cigars, to which Charles Spurgeon said, Ma'am, I believe in moderation. She said, Well, what does that mean? He says, Ma'am, that means one cigar at a time. I like him. I like what he says. I like the way he thinks. But you see, that woman, she wanted to add not cigar smoking to why we are justified. But Paul clearly says in Galatians 2, the only vehicle to grace is faith. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it. And we certainly cannot work for it. 
Because the Bible says the righteousness required of you and I to get into heaven is the same righteousness of God. It's what Jesus said at the, end of the, at, the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The bar there in heaven that says you must be this tall to ride is the righteousness of God. But we're all sinners. The Bible's very clear. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, which means the only way to attain that kind of righteousness is to believe or to have faith that somebody else was righteous for us. Only through faith that Jesus was righteous on your behalf can you receive the unmerited grace of God. Meaning through faith alone, we are credited with achieving something that we actually haven't. All the righteousness of Jesus is freely given to whomever believes they need it. But the Roman Catholic Church, they saw things differently and still do today. To understand the the Catholic doctrine, think of justification like a bathtub with a red line around the top on the inside. And you've got to get your water level or your merit up to the red line in order to be saved. Think of it that way. So whenever you're baptized in the Catholic Church, you, you essentially put the stopper in the plug and turn on the water and start collecting merit. However, if you commit a venial sin, that's like a minor sin, you turn the water off and it stops filling the tub. But if you commit a mortal sin, a bad sin, murder, adultery, something like that, you actually pull the plug out of the tub, all the water goes out and you've got to start over. So in comes the second part of justification, according to the Catholic Church, which is called penance. Which means you can put the plug back in and or start the water flowing again by performing certain acts of penance that the church might assign to you. They might say you have to say extra prayers, you might have to go to extra masses, you might have to do some other sacraments in the church. But you have to do something to start putting water back in your tub. However, thirdly, According to the Catholic Church, unless you are perfect, you're going to come up short when you die no matter what. Which means when you, when you, you're going to have to spend some time in purgatory is what that means. Paying for however much more water you need in your tub to get up to that line. But when you do finally get to heaven, what happens is they say you super arrogate. Not irrigate, arrogate. Means you super arrogate, which means merit or water overflows out of your tub. You have more than you need once you finally get to heaven. Guess what happens to all that extra water that overflows out of your tub? Well, all that extra water, all that extra merit from people who finally make it to heaven, it all overflows into what the Catholic Church calls the treasury of works or the treasury of the church, which means. If you know someone has died, someone you love has died, and and you don't want them to spend as much time for whatever reason in purgatory, guess how you can have some of that extra merit floating around in the church's account credited to them? That's right. For the low, low price of an indulgence, you too can buy justification or merit for dead people from the Catholic Church. Now, if that sounded a little complicated, good. It is. That's the point. 
The whole point of the reformation, like Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. So that's what this church is going to stick with, period. But is it just any kind of faith? I mean, can I have faith in Allah, or can I have faith in Buddha, or can I have faith in some other God? Well, turn to your left again to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Just prior to Acts 4, Peter has just healed a, a lame beggar. And, and a crowd gathered around to see what all the commotion was. And Peter preached the gospel to them and about 5,000 people were saved. Now, of course, this really annoyed the religious people because nobody wanted to listen to them. So they arrested Peter and John and brought them before the council and demanded, by what power has this man been saved? And we'll pick up with Peter's answer beginning in, in, in verse 8, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now listen, and there is, no, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, what Peter is telling the council in Jerusalem is the same thing we believe today. That we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in solus Christus, in Christ alone. Now, it's important to understand what the dispute was between the Catholic Church and the Reformers when we look at solus Christus, because it's as subtle as it is important. You see, both the Catholic Church and the Reformers believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is needed to be justified. But the Catholic Church had designed and, and still holds to an elaborate system of priests and sacraments a chain of command, if you will, that one has to go through to get to Jesus and therefore His grace. Meaning, you don't just confess your sins to Jesus. You're a dirty sinner. You have to confess your sins to a priest or someone like that, and then they will pass that confession up the chain until it gets to Jesus. You certainly don't pray to Jesus. No, you pray to, to a saint or someone like that or Mary. And they'll go talk to Jesus for you because Jesus likes them and not you. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church both had and still has constructed another veil. Not of cloth, but of people to keep saints separate from God. They've constructed another veil like was in the temple to keep people separate from God. But the Reformers had read verses like 1 Timothy 2.5 that says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 21, that says we can now go directly to God with confidence through Jesus Christ. So the reformers were like, we don't need priests to get to God. That's what the Bible says. They're, 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 these priests are certainly not going to decide what we need to do or say or pay to get to God. No, we have access to the Father through the work of Christ alone. And the reason is this, and this was the important part of this. The reason that this is so important is because ours is not some impersonal Savior who works through a hierarchy of priests and a bureaucracy of stifling religious ceremony in order to keep himself from having to deal with spiritual vagrants such as you and I. That is not the God we serve. No, the Savior we have is one who, because of his great desire to be with his people, became a man and then lived on this earth, not only so that he could live like us, but so that he could live for us. In other words, whether you believe it or not, there is only one way to God. And it ain't through a priest or a saint. All roads don't lead to heaven. In fact, all roads lead to hell except for one road. It's the road that is paved with grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But how do we know all of this is true? How do we know that this is what God has said? Well, that's actually why we have arranged the chairs this way. You see, at the center of the Reformation was the dispute between the Reformers and the Catholic Church's view of this right here, the Bible. That was at the center of the Reformation. In fact, it's what ended up being the reason Martin Luther got got axed. Now, Now, listen, both Martin Luther and the Catholic Church believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant. They both believe that. But the Catholic Church doesn't believe the Bible is the only inspired and inerrant authority that we have. You say they, they believe that along with the Bible, the church, or more specifically the Pope, is also inspired and inerrant. Meaning the rules that the Pope makes, or how he interprets Scripture, is also inerrant and inspired directly by God. And you can still see proof of this today. Think about it this way. What do people tend to do to something they think is divine? How do we treat those things? Like if the Catholic Church sees the Pope and the Church itself as being inspired and infallible, then what would be elevated? What would be decorated? What would be set apart? Well, just think about how incredible the buildings of the Catholic Churches are. All the opulence of the Vatican, the incredible artistry that's been there throughout the ages, the, the adornment of the Pope. This all begins to make sense when you understand that it's because they believe those things are as divinely inspired and inerrant as the Bible. This is where things got dangerous for Martin Luther because he said what we believe is that if Scripture is the only inspired and inerrant authority we need, then Scripture is the only authority we're going to obey. 
And people who have corrupted the Bible to control things for themselves don't like it when people say things like that. But think about the Reformed Church. If they had done things the way that we've been talking about, then what would be elevated or set apart? Well, just look at our little sanctuary. What's the only thing in this room that has any artistry or decoration or, or is set above? The pulpit. And not because we think this piece of wood is, designed, is divine or inspired or anything like that, but because this is what holds up Scripture. That's what the Reformation believed. And, and let me be clear, the issue for us today might not be that the authority of Scripture is being usurped by some religious organization. That might not be the case. But its authority is still being infiltrated nonetheless. You see, even within the Protestant church today, things like emotions and experiences and culture have come to have equal, if not greater, sway than Scripture. Nowadays, within the, within the Protestant church, it doesn't matter what the Bible says about homosexuality. The, the culture says it's okay, so the church has to be okay with it too, right? Nowadays, too many Christians no longer seek to have their lives shaped by Scripture, but instead they shop around to preachers to, to validate their feelings and their experiences. Nowadays, so many Christians claim that God has spoken to them in some supernatural way, and they disregard the Bible if it says something different. Nowadays, the phrase, well, I just don't agree with that, holds as much authority as Scripture, if not more. Test yourself here, Cedar Springs Church. Test yourself, because... Very few Christians would ever say out loud that their experiences or their desires are divinely inspired. We wouldn't say that out loud, but many lives seem like they do. Again, this is why we call ourselves a Reformed Church. It's why we've arranged our sanctuary this way once a year. Because just like the Reformers, this book alone is at the center of our lives. It alone will shape and order and direct our lives because it alone is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And so once a year, just like some of the, the Reformers did in their sanctuaries, we put the pulpit in the middle of the congregation to symbolize this. Brothers and sisters, this book you see here, literally in the midst of you this morning, has everything you need for life. There is not a question that you could ask or a problem you could face or, or a need you could have that is not perfectly and inerrantly addressed in here because this book alone contains the inspired and inerrant Word of God. In other words, we are saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught by Scripture alone. But lastly... Lastly, why would God do all of this? Why would He go to such lengths to save people like you and I? Well, think of it this way. Today, man seems absorbed with finding life somewhere else in the universe. 
we wonder, how can this tiny speck of dust called earth be the only place where life exists? And that's the right question to ask if you, if you think that the purpose of the universe is to sustain life. But what if it isn't? What if the purpose of the universe is something different? What if earth is intended to sustain life? But the universe, what if it's intended for something else? What if the universe is intended to be just a whiff, just a glimpse, just a shadow of the majesty and greatness of God to the life that is sustained here on earth? Because that's what the scripture says the universe is intended to do. The scriptures say that earth is intended to support life and the rest of the universe is so that all that life on that speck of dust can look up and say, wow, that's it. Light years of universe created for mankind to say, wow. In other words, just like the rest of the universe, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, there are a thousand places in Scripture we could go to see this, but I want to point you to just one. Flip to your right to Ephesians chapter 1, because in Ephesians chapter 1, not, not only do we get perhaps one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation in all of Scripture, but I want you to tune your ears to the, to the threefold purpose of our salvation that lies within this description. Listen for the, for the three reasons Paul sprinkles into this passage for why you and I have been saved this way. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Listen, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first, listen, to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Listen, to the praise of His glory. In other words, brothers and sisters, just like we have over the doorway to our sanctuary, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the scriptures tell us alone, to the glory of God 
alone. And it's not just salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Which means not only are we saved to the glory of God, but we go to work to the glory of God. We go to school to the glory of God. We, we, we raise our kids to the glory of God. We go to the store to the glory of God. All our entire lives are to the glory of God. And so the last thing I want to ask is how do we do that? How do we truly glorify God in our daily lives because of our salvation? Well, I think John Piper has put it well, so I'm just going to let him say it. He says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Or, what's the, the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the, the, what is the chief end of man? It is to, what, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Listen, brothers and sisters, the way God is glorified through us is when we live like we believe what we just heard. God is glorified when our lives are filled with the peace that comes from grace alone. God is glorified when, when we rest in Him because of faith alone. And God is glorified when we rejoice in the light yoke and easy burden of Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, our God is glorified by our joy in Him. Our joy in what He has done for us. Which is why, again, we believe that this church must constantly be reforming, constantly holding fast to these simple doctrines of grace. Because man constantly wants to clog up that salvation, wants to add works and barriers and obligations to take away that joy. But listen, it's not obligation it's not rote ceremony or religion that we have to offer people. No, what we have to offer people is the pure, unadulterated joy that not only salvation, but peace and hope and rest and everything else this world is absolutely clamoring for, that that can all be had by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as told in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So that when on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere His people be. All glory be to Christ.